Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 10, picking up where we left off last week. We're going to try to nail two chapters tonight. We're spending way more time on chapter 10 than chapter 11. So if you're getting all worried that it's going to go super, super long, it'll go long because we always do. Um, but chapter 11 is really quick. Like we're going to blast through that pretty fast. Um, people say that the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts and that that's a, it's a totally New Testament thing when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. This is, when you go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, it totally demolishes that idea. It is, it is clear and evident in the text that that's exactly what happens to Saul when he first gets anointed as king, is the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Uh, so we're going to look at that, we'll, we'll unpack that, but let's start in. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, which is messy, and kissed him and said, it is, not, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So we just got done in the last chapter with all these coincidences making Samuel and Saul come together, and Samuel uh, pulls Saul to the side, and he gives him this anointing of, uh, that is going to be a king. People of Israel want a king. They're going to get a king. This is the guy. Oil is going to be a symbol of service or being in God's service. It's this image of being just coated or covered by the Holy Spirit. And so when we see anointing being done this way, it's not that they're taking a little oil on their thumb and rubbing it on their forehead or something. He's dumping the oil out and pouring it over. And so it's going to get in his beard. It's like a nice beard oil. It's all over him. Um, but it's how they would anoint the priest for temple service. So there's this connection there. God's spirit pours all over Saul, and this pouring equips him for the service. If it, it, and then Samuel kisses him. This is not a romantic gesture. This is simply ancient world greeting or anointing. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit is covering Saul. The kissing is an image that Samuel supports him to. Brother to brother, I'm here for you and I've got your back. So the monarchy of Israel gets instituted in this one sentence. This is, and it's instituted as a holy office. In the Middle Ages, the kings of the Middle Ages would arrogantly say, I'm the anointed king of England and therefore I am God's agent on earth. That's absolutely what's not, not what's happening here. Because the Israelite kings, though it was a holy office, it was in combination with the prophet. So the king didn't have ultimate authority. He had authority under God, and the prophet could hold him in check. So it was almost like a two-person government system. Instead of a single tyrant, there would be a king that was held in accountable by this prophet. And the prophet had no civic power, but he had all the spiritual power. And the king had no spiritual power by himself, but he had all the civic power. So it also says, it's, is it not because the Lord has anointed? This is a really special anointing. Um, that's private. Remember, Samuel pulled Saul off to the side one-on-one. -on -one. So it's super intimate and kind of sweet and secret. And I'm going to argue this is, what we're going to see in chapter 10 looks a little bit like when somebody gets saved. 
that there's this moment that's really private between you and God, where there's this commitment that you've made, and God anoints and, and makes that moment sacred, and it's memorable, and it's clear, and just like oil, there's a residue that soaks in with you, and some people feel just a weight lifted when that happens, when there's a prayer of salvation, a repentance, and a commitment to the Lord, uh, which we saw some of that in the last chapter, um, and there's this kind of you go forward then with this sense of, was that real? Did that really happen? And you still have to go back to the real world. And, it, and he says, I anointed you over the commander of his inheritance. I think it's interesting because in the Hebrew, the word commander there means captain, like a military leader. Um, it, it's the person Samuel's put in place, but he doesn't give him the title of king. Now, if you see that, he's anointed him as a king, but he calls him a commander and he's and it's in the, the Lord has anointed him. So God's doing this to capitulate to what the Israelites want, even though it's not necessarily what God set up for them initially. So Samuel reminds him that he's a king, but he belongs to God. He's a steward or a captain of an army. He's not the owner of that army. And so the role of king is one to ser- be a servant to God and to the people. And there's a responsibility that comes with that title and that role. Um, and Saul is supposed to be accountable for that care. So now we get this list of events that's going to confirm that question of, is it not because the Lord has done something? So when the Lord moves in our life, sometimes we can go back to question because we go back to life, right? And then you're like, okay, how do I know the Lord's working in my life right now and what he's doing? And that, that's an honest set of questions that people can really struggle with. More importantly, Saul's going to get a new heart through this process. The end result of this is his heart's changed. His heart's changed, not changed when he eats with Samuel in the last chapter. His heart is not changed in verse 1 with the anointing of the oil, but his heart changes after this confirmation where God and him speak to each other. And the way God speaks to Saul is really unique. Verse 2, when you've departed from me today, this is Samuel talking, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went looking for have been found, and now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys, and he's worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? So this is confirmation number one. And confirmation number one is don't worry about your home. And there's very specific ways that he's going to hear that. So when these things happen, Saul can know, oh, God's actually the one that anointed me, not Samuel. Because God's making these things happen that Samuel can't control. So the first element is there will be two men by Rachel's tomb, not zero, not one, maybe more than two. It doesn't say that. Um, But it's very specific. So it's not a mysterious, God's not being mysterious here. God's being really overt. Um, And also it's, it's, if God's not in it and he comes walking by Rachel's tomb and there's nobody there, it's really easy to prove Samuel wrong in all this problem is Samuel's a prophet and he's not going to be wrong on this. So they will say to you, so not only are they going to be there, they're going to actually approach Saul and say something. So it gets even more specific. And God doesn't want Saul to doubt that he's involved. So he's going to get even more specific. They're going to say specific things to you about something you're worried about. Um, It's important to note here that this three days of of trying to find the donkeys in the last chapter uh, that Saul's been on, that this of course, his home, and he left his home because there were troubles and things weren't, there were missing donkeys. So they got to go find these donkeys. And knowing that this work is part of what Saul was obligated to do, what Samuel is giving him is essentially kind of relax, 
the home life is taken care of. Things are in order back at home. So that's going to be the first confirmation. It reminds me of Matthew 6. Don't worry saying what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All those troubles in your life are going to get resolved and that's going to be your first indicator that God's with you. That he'll take care of some of these things that you've worried about. So he's going to start heading back home. He's going to come to this spot and then these two people are going to approach him and give him comfort that the home life is in order and things are there. Oftentimes people get saved and they try to go out and do things before they've got their life in order. And that can be skipping a step that Saul doesn't, at least in this model, that's a key part of what happens. So here's confirmation number two. There's bread that's going to be involved. So first the home, then bread. Verse three, then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Extremely specific. Like this is just an odd scene by any standard in any period of time. And they will greet you and give you two loaves. They're just going to hand you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. Okay, when you see something that weird, you're going, okay, what's going on here? Like clearly there's something that has to be being said there. So first, it's extremely specific. The place, the number of men, the direction the men are walking, the destination the men have, and then these odd little loads. Three, did I get that right? Three young goats. Like, he's the big guy, because he's literally carrying three goats, one under each arm and, what, one over the shoulders, maybe? How do you carry three goats? So it's very specific. The prophecy is not saying, um, <laughs> it's not vague at all. This is, okay, I got to beef with this, because we've seen this in real life. If a person gets up and says, I'm a prophet of the Lord, and they're talking to 300 people, and they say, someone in this room has back pain. That's not prophecy. I hate to break it to you. That's people playing a game with being a spokesman of God. It's just not prophecy. When we see God speak, it's extremely specific. It's something that there's no way that person would know it outside of this. And we've seen that too. And when you see that, you realize God's moving amongst his people and it's pretty awesome. It gives you this calm and this affirmation like God's at work. When somebody's up saying, I'm thinking of the color blue, someone in this room is thinking of the color blue right now, that's not prophecy, that's like a gypsy shyster kind of thing. No offense to the gypsies, right? So uh, this, this idea of prophecy in the Bible being vague and obscure, it's not, it never is. It's specific and we should know that. Um, also note here the, the, the elements. Uh, there's three of this, three of this. Um, there's three men, three lambs, and three loaves of bread. Three, three, three. It's complete, complete, complete in a very complete way. So in the Hebrew, we know those numbers have some meaning, but there's a fullness, there's a prophetic completeness to all of this. When Saul sees this, maybe the two people by the tomb are just a happenstance, but when you see this, you're like, okay, surely God is with it. That can't just be an accident. This is prophecy. Verse 4, they will greet you and they will give you two loaves of bread. It doesn't say why they'll, they're going to give him two loaves of bread. But as an anointed king, Saul's going to have to get used to people giving him things. This is what God's gifted you for. It's the role God's given you in the kingdom. And people are going to start to honor that. And these are going to be the first people that honor their king with a gift. And the gift they give him is bread, and, it, and specifically two loaves of bread. So this is an uncommon greeting. We don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. 
hi, nice to meet you. Let me give you the bread that I've been carrying around. Um, it's the weirder situation that Saul cannot write off anymore. So God doesn't do fireworks. And I think most mature believers that have seen God at work, we kind of get to used to this. God doesn't make explosions in our life. He makes little whispers to let us know he's there. Little assurances that when we see them and we're looking for them, they're beautiful and they're wonderful. So God works in mysterious ways, but not ununderstandable ways. And, there, and when you get to know the character of God, God does that. In fact, God working in mysterious ways, I should say that's a, that's a misquoting of that. That's actually nowhere in the Bible. The closest you get is Isaiah 45, 15. God works in hidden ways. That he, 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 he hides things so that he can reveal them to us. Um, but he doesn't leave us in doubt over some of those things. Um, Truly you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. That there is a revelation when people go seeking God and they find him. So there's a lot of things hidden from Saul. Who are the men that are going to do it? Why are they going to give it? He doesn't get any of those details, and we don't either. Because those things are hidden, Saul has to trust that God's working in other people's hearts other than him. He's given an example that not only proves God's working in his life, but gives him more humility about how little control he has over the situation. So Saul has to remember all this. God's actually asking Saul to use his brain through this prophecy too. Saul has to remember all of these details so when he sees them, he knows what's going on. So number one, things are settled at home. Number two, you're going to receive bread, which throughout the scriptures kind of points to God's word as a symbol or an image of God's word. You're going to get things in order at home. You're going to get God's word. And then number three, there's going to be a transformation. Verse 5, after that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistines' garrison is. So he's going into their territory. Um, chapter 11, 4, later calls this the hill of Saul for, this, for what's happening right now. Uh, but this is close to Gibeah, his hometown. So this is a, the, directionally and geographically, Saul is moving back to his hometown after being anointed the king. And it will happen to you when you've come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Transformation. Something's going to happen. It's not just that God's asking Saul to look at the outside world. He's also, in this third instance, asking Saul to realize something's happening in his heart. And he's going to start to do and say things that he wasn't doing and saying before. So a group of prophets in the Hebrew is nabi, which means spokesman. That's what a prophet is. Um, but it doesn't appear that they're predicting the future. They're actually carrying a bunch of instruments. Today we call that singing. And in the Old Testament, we saw, we saw singing way back when there was singing at the tabernacle um, and singing with Moses, that there were prophets that would be the spokesman of God. And one of the ways we speak for God is we sing God's praises. Like the angels at the end of days will be singing his praises in heaven. And so if those of you who don't like to sing, you should work on it because that's part of the activity of heaven. And that we sing God's praises and we, we, we enjoy that. I hope that in perfected bodies we have better singing voices when we get to heaven. So they have a band. This is what we'd call a band. They're a traveling band minstrels, and they're walking around singing songs to the Lord. So uh, actually it's a psalter, which would be a stringed instrument, 
there's a percussion instrument, a melody instrument, and the harp would be used for a lead melody. This is a band. It's a traveling little band. And they wouldn't be a rock band, but they're, there's a pun in there somewhere. Somebody help me out. But they're singing praise to the rock of ages? No. Nothing, Grant? Okay, we'll just skip that bad pun that didn't actually happen. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is we see other instances where, can you imagine living in Israel? There's just these traveling bands walking around singing praises. They're on tour, and they just walk the roads and stop in towns. Um, 2 Kings 5.22, 9.4, King David actually supported these bands, like he was a sponsor of the arts. Uh, there were bands outside the temple, um, these bands would often live together and in like communal living, a lot like broke bands do today. Like they all crash in the same apartment, Second Kings 6, 1 through 2, and they would eat together and dine together. So they kind of shared food, Second Kings 4.38. So we see groups of prophets that make music and travel around as spokesmen of God singing his praises. I love this. It's the first Christian music, but it's like pre-Christian. So... It could have started back with Eldad and Medad back in Numbers chapter 11. Remember the instance? People come running up to Moses and they're like, these two guys are running around singing. And, Moses, and, and did they get your permission? And are they doing this in your name? And Moses is like, like, great. It would be great if like all of Israel was doing this. Like, why are you so upset that these people are running around being prophets or singing? So we see throughout the Bible that when they say prophet, there's different actions that come with the word prophet. Sometimes they're predicting the future, like Samuel just got done doing, but sometimes they're just singing songs. And it's a general term that covers people that speak for the Lord. In the past tense, present tense, singing tense, or future tense. So this is where we see this instance. So Samuel encourages these traveling bands too. He wants them to sing about God. Elijah supports these singing bands. Elisha supports these singing bands. Um, so we have that sort of situation. Again, I'm hoping we do a music night where we do the Jesus music movie. One of the things that happened when they first started seeing a revival in California in the 19, early 1970s is that people started showing up in these little bands. So at one point, Costa Mesa had 12 bands as their worship teams. And they would just rotate these bands in and out because they're all writing new music. When God moves, music starts to happen. And it's awesome. So a lot of times we feel the spirit of God move through a soundtrack or through music that happens in our lives. The downside is we all have different tastes in music. So when there's a unity around music, God makes that unity happen because in human, we don't do that on our, on our own at all. Um, so that's kind of neat. Prophecy here is a verb, naba. So they're running, they're prophesying, so to speak, as they do this. Um, so specifically, you have this very uncommon situation that Saul's going to run into a traveling band. And, and then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Ruah Jehovah. Ruah is breath. The breath of God will come upon you. And, and even the will come there and the Spirit of God will come upon you. Will come in the Hebrew means to rush, prosper, or to push forward. You're going to get a push from the Lord to go sing with these prophets. Now, this is interesting because Saul's not a trained musician. He's a trained donkey finder. But all of a sudden, he's going to just be ready to sing. And it's going to burst out of him. We don't know if Saul had a good voice or not, and the Bible doesn't say. But I imagine he's not that great, right? And it, 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 at least 
the way we should read that is that at least for a moment, the Holy Spirit's going to push you. And this is really different. It's not the same as Ruah Jehovah, Spirit of God, resting upon someone like what we see or what we've seen so far, Numbers chapter 11, uh, 1 John, or John 1, 32. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it rested on Jesus. So we have two different ways the Holy Spirit comes at people. Sometimes the Holy Spirit nudges or pushes people. With Pharaoh in Egypt, the Holy Spirit hardened his heart. That's three ways. And then sometimes we see the Holy Spirit resting on people like he did with Moses or Jesus, where that Holy Spirit's with them the rest of their life. All of these instances are different. The New Testament promises that for people that believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will indwell you. That's a fourth mode. So in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus, the Holy Spirit might anoint or be with someone, like poured over them like oil, like Moses. But in the New Testament, God promises the Holy Spirit's actually in you and it transforms you. With Saul, it's not resting on him, it's pushing him. Because people are like, well, then how did Saul fall away? It didn't rest on him. So you can have spiritual experiences, even with Yahweh, the Almighty God, but not necessarily live with or spend your life with the God. And it's a very kind of interesting theological debate. We can talk about it afterwards. It says, you will prophesy. Perhaps in this context, Samuel's meaning that Saul's going to sing along with the band. But it doesn't say that. It might be he starts predicting the future, and they just didn't document that part of it. So band's going to be playing, and Saul, you're going to join the band. Now Saul knows something is really different because he's not a musician. But all of a sudden, he's going to jump in. You ever have people that join the band, they can't keep a beat? I don't know why, but in my head, like, I got that. But these musicians are so cool with Saul doing it. They're like, you, that's fine, you know. Join in, sing along. It's the joy of the Lord that matters. But it, and then at the end, it says you're going to be turned into another man. Uh, it'll, it'll be you, but you're going to wonder how this happened. So Saul can know Samuel is not just a kooky old weird man. Saul's going to know that Samuel speaks for the Lord God Almighty because of these three situations. Your home life's going to be in order. You're going to get somebody that hands you bread. And you're going to start singing the praises of God. You're going to be a transformed man. That's what's about to happen in your life. Then verse 7. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. He gives him no instruction. And this is the most irritating thing in the world. God, just tell me what to do next. I want a to-do list. And God doesn't do that. Gives you the spirit of God, gives you the joy of the Lord, and then it's like, do what the occasion demands. Okay, so you wake up in the morning, you're like, what, God, what do you got for me today? And what can I do? So it's interesting that the voice of God is so subtle. It's interesting in how specific it is. It's interesting that it's in these commands, <clears throat> and that he's going to give Saul three signs so there's no confusion. Like, it's just this obvious thing. Home, bread, transformation. Uh, and it's indicative of how the Holy Spirit can work in our lives, too. Um, get your home in order. Be in the Word of God. Transformation happens. Do what the occasion demands. And serve where you see opportunities to serve. So I think that leads to very practical questions like, have I given my home life to the Lord? Do I have things in my home that are out of order? Or are the donkeys found and my dad is confident that I'm safe? And then the second question, of course, is are, am I in the Word? Am I regularly and faithfully committing a part of my life to being in the Word of God? 
And that can just be coming to church on a Sunday and being in a place where they teach the word. It's that simple. Verse 8. <laughs> you shall go down before me to Gilgal, <clears throat> and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings. Burnt offerings, remember, are uh, offering of repentance. And make sacrifices of peace offerings, which are fellowship. <clears throat> burnt offerings go all the way up to God. You burn them entirely. Peace offerings, you cook them perfectly and eat them as a party. Like this, so it's a peace offering. Read barbecue and festival. Uh, seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So after this anointing happens, huh, you're going to see sign, 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 and then I want you to just wait upon the Lord. Wait upon Samuel. That's the hardest thing for believers to do ever. Lord, I'm ready to go. I feel my spirit's changed. I'm a transformed person. I want to serve you, but, but now you're asking me to wait. And this is one of the things we submit to the Lord. So many people skip these steps. So many people neglect getting their home in order. Many, many people skip trying to figure out the word of God, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, two loaves of bread. Many, many, many people don't jump in the band when the Spirit's moving. They get all like proper and I'm too cool for that stuff. And they don't just let themselves go when the Holy Spirit's moving. And then you get a lot more people, probably most people, they can't wait upon the Lord. And they just are too anxious to jump into situations and they end up learning. God will teach you that way too, but that can be the hard way to learn things. You leap before God wants you to leap. So God waits. God's king is going to wait on a prophet. Think about how this establishes a new government. It requires humility for the king of Israel to wait on the prophet. And it shows you the authority structure. Who's waiting on who in this situation? So initially Saul's going to get this, but later he's going to forget him place, his place. And he's going to be all like, I'm king and I don't need to listen to prophets. Um, so, but initially uh, Saul's going to try to do this. His earthly command is going to be under the sovereignty of a godly command spoken through the prophet. Verse 9. So it was, <clears throat> when he had turned his back from, to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they were... The, the, most, so far in the Bible, when it says, like, this is what's going to happen, they actually write out how it happens. And in this particular instance, the author just skips that and says, all those signs came to pass. So everything we just read and described actually happens, but we don't get the narrative of it happening. Verse 10, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So we go right to the third confirmation, and he prophesied among them. He jumps in when the Spirit's moving, and he lets himself go. So the turning here, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel. It's a physical turning, not that he's rejecting Samuel, but he's just taken off and going on his way away from Samuel. God gave him another heart. Easy to say this is a transformation, a renewal, a clean heart. Um, and Samuel doesn't do this. God does this. God gave him another heart, not Samuel. And I want to just point that out because a lot of people get all excited when they hear a good Bible teaching. It's not the person teaching the Bible. It's the Bible doing that work on your heart. It really isn't the speaker because some of us have a lisp and mess up words and say words we probably shouldn't say in teachings and things like that. It's not the teacher, it's the Holy Spirit doing a work on you because it's God's word. It's not, it's not Samuel that matters, it's God that matters. And good teachers and good prophets always give that direction. So only God gives new hearts and that's the passage here. Um, 
it's also true in the New Testament, Matthew 6, 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, he's literally standing in front of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is telling him, telling Peter, it's not me that got this to you. It's the, it's the Spirit of God that has informed you that I'm the Messiah, right? Because I didn't share that with you. So we oftentimes don't give God credit for what God is actually doing in our life. So all the signs are coming to pass. He prophesies among them. He jumps in with the band. They're singing, uh, you're a good, good father together. I think Chris Tomlin got that from Saul and the, the prophets. Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. Likely he's singing. Uh, how does he know the words to the songs? They're either repetitive songs like Hallelujah, the song where they sing Hallelujah over and over and over again, so it's easy to join in, or the Holy Spirit's giving him the lyrics to this music and he's just jumping right in. Um, we have the book of Psalms if you want to see some of the lyrics. So I don't see any of the Psalms being simple. <laughs> like, so I would assume that the Psalms that they're singing are one, some of the ones that would have been recorded and captured. Um, so some of those songs, usually Hebrew songs, are ornate and long and poetic. Um, so Sam, Saul jumping in and singing them, he's jumping in with prophets. And if they served at the temple and they were Levites, they would have been training their whole life. There's whole families of Levites that train as musicians. So he's jumping in with professional musicians that have been doing this their whole life. And he's just singing along and, and making music with them. Amazing story. And it happened when all who knew him saw that he had indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that's come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then a man from there answered and said, who's their father? And therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he'd finished prophesying, he went to the high place. So the point of the story from our writer is that people saw what happened to Saul. The inner transformation becomes something that people recognize from the outside. This guy's anointed, puts his home in order, gets two loaves of bread, and then he starts exhibiting and celebrating the Lord God Almighty, and everybody around him sees the difference. Who's this guy? It makes you think that Saul was formerly not the type of guy that would jump in with a bunch of prophets and sing songs. We know these people. They're stoic. They're, they're, they're kingly right? They're proper. And so the idea of who is this guy, who's, is that the son of Kish? Like maybe Kish was a fairly dignified guy that you wouldn't expect to see that. So the townspeople see Saul doing this, and then they start asking, who is their father? That's the response that people should have when they meet us. Look at this person. Look at how different they are. Who is their father? And so even in the, and, it's, and I love how God does this, in verse 11, they know that he's the son of Kish. So when they say, but who is their father? That's an interesting question because they just said who his earthly father was. So the question is really like, who does this guy serve? Who's this person's master? Who gives them such joy? So it says, who is their father? It's in the plural. It's not in the singular. So they're not just talking about Saul. They're talking about the whole band, Right? And therefore, it should be kind of a rhetorical question. This whole band is singing praises to the Lord God Almighty, their Father in heaven. So it's an insightful answer. He's not the son of Kish anymore. He's a child of God. And that allegiance has shifted and changed. And so you get this image of salvation through this thing, right? And it hasn't changed at all 
with what we're offered in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men so they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not your Father on earth, but a Father in heaven. And that's what's actually happening to Saul in this passage. He's changing from the inside out and people are like, who is this guy? And what they're amazed by is his joy. And the joy of the Lord is our, is our strength. Boy, a lot more of you should have said that. Let's try that again. The joy of our Lord is our strength. Thank you very much. Um, so it's, and then, and then when it says it became a proverb, in modern English that be, became a meme, right? This just became a phrase that people would use. And so something unbelievable would happen, and then the response would be, well, isn't Saul among the prophets? Like, hey, I'll believe anything, because if Saul's singing with the prophets, then God must be alive on the earth. So the character of the before is a testimony to God in the after. And so that whole thing where people are just, and to become a proverb means it lasts for like decades. Hey, if Saul's singing with the prophets, God can do anything. And akin to like, hey, if Sean can teach the Bible, God can do anything with anybody. Like if that happens really, and it's a blessing to anyone, then God must exist, right? If so-and-so is now be hospital, that selfish person's becoming a host, there must be a God. Right? If that, if that uh, mean person is being nice to everybody and doing good works, there must be a God. So whoever you think you were before God, God can use that to be part of the testimony when there's a transformation. But blessings to the people who never have to do that because they've been serving the Lord their whole life. Then you can just be joyful and give gifts. If this guy can sing praises, anybody can sing praises. That's the kind of testimony Saul had. So God's their father and only he can do it. Verse 13 says when he finished prophesying. Uh, so he gets this gift for a time. I think this is really interesting. And I'm struggling with this, to be honest. Oftentimes when they talk about gifts being given to people, it's like this thing you're given a spiritual gift and you have it for the rest of your life. But in here, he actually finishes prophesying. He stops. So there is a, and remember the spirit didn't come upon him. The spirit pushed him. So it's this moment that Saul has that's close to God, and this is the torture he's going to get the rest of his life. At one point in his life, he was close to God, but he's forgotten that point. So there's no mention, by the way, he had a servant with him this whole time. There's no mention of the servant, but he's going to show up again here in verse 14. Um, So he's given this gift for a time. He sings with the prophet. The day's over. He's been on this huge spiritual high, and then everything kind of settles down. Um, verse 14 then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant so the servant's still in the picture which makes you think what's the servant thinking while all this is happening this nameless person like watching this all happen with Saul I think my friend Saul has gone nuts where did you go says the uncle so he said to look for the donkeys when we saw that they were nowhere to be found we went to Samuel and Saul's uncle said oh tell me tell me please what Samuel said to you Samuel's got a reputation, right? So Saul, and his, so Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. This is, okay, so we got this beautiful moment with Saul, but we can also see another side to Saul that he doesn't share what God's doing in his life. It's important to share what God's doing in your life. Why would you keep God's work private? 
The reason God works with you in your life is so that you can share that with other people. So it doesn't say why Saul keeps this from his uncle. Um, it just says that he did. Um, about the, but about the matter of the kingdom. It's interesting that that language gets used in the Old Testament. Usually when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But that language that gets used in the New Testament is just slid in here at the Old Testament as kind of a mirror of what God Jesus is going to introduce when he shows up. And this process of transformation becomes available to everybody. It's almost like God's using this whole story with Saul to show us what salvation looks like in the New Testament. And then when it actually happens, people recognize it because it's right here in the Old Testament. Likely, this secrecy that Saul has right now, I think this is important as we get into Saul. Later on, Saul's going to get so jealous of David. And remember, he's going to throw spears at him when David's singing. It's when David expresses the joy of the Lord through song that gets Saul so jealous and angry, he tries to kill him. Why? Because Saul remembers what it was like to feel that joy. And he also remembers that he was anointed in secret. And he also remembers that God's anointing means that he became king, not on his own strength, but on God's. So when he sees David, it's easy for him to think, this is God's anointed because he's got the spirit of God in him, and I hate him for it because I don't have it anymore. The spirit just pushed me. It didn't rest upon me. And so Saul gets angry about this. So that seed gets planted. Um, <clears throat> and then we get, uh, so um, Saul gets proclaimed king after you know, starting Christian contemporary music. And then Samuel, verse 17, calls the people together to the Lord in Mitzpah. And he said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, I brought, up Israel out of, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. So <clears throat> Samuel comes, he shows up, talks to all the people. Let me share with you that remember your history. Remember, I took care of you. And it's one last reminder that God's been a pretty good leader for Israel so far, over 400 years. And he's been their deliverer under the judges. He's took care of everyone. Um, and this king plan is kind of their plan, not God's. Verse 19, but you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said this to him, no set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Okay, we're going to do this. You're going to get your king. But it's not God's plan. And it's really clear in 19. That's what God is telling them. So the ID process looks a lot like when they were picking lots for the land allocations in Joshua. They all put it in a vase and they pull it out. And so God works through that randomization. Um, verse 20, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, uh, this would be like the tribal elders, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen, so likely out of that vase like we saw in Joshua. And when he called the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen then out of the family of Matri. But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. <laughs> Where's Saul? Hey, everybody, where'd Saul go? Remember Saul's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Not a hard guy to find. Verse 22, therefore they inquired of the Lord further. Okay, Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. Why is Saul hiding? It's a huge question. Why is he hiding? He's been anointed. He's been there. 
Saul's already anointed. Um, this isn't between Samuel and Saul, but he's scared or ashamed to go in front of the people of Israel with this new anointing. <clears throat> he was chosen. Um, God has been choosing and selecting, so it's not like you can hide from God, but he's hiding in the equipment, which shows something of Saul's character, right? Is he shy? Is he scared to take on the responsibility? Is there an innocence with Saul? Like, is he kind of a, a big, thick-headed guy, and he just doesn't know what to do with this situation? He doesn't want to get up in front of people? Uh, you know, sometimes I think this happens to believers, too, in that we get the Holy Spirit, but then we hide. And we want to not put that out in front of other people. And that, that tendency of wearing the crowns that God's made for us is something we, we hide. Um, so he hides among the equipment. And many people choose to do this. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. So the crown has changed. Saul's getting a, a, an earthly crown. We get a heavenly crown, but sometimes we hide from the crown that we've been offered and given. And we don't embrace it, and we don't put it on, and we don't march forward as though we are chosen by our king. So I think Saul shows a lot of like humanity here, but he's hiding from his crown, and he doesn't want to put it on because he knows what it means. So they ran and brought him from there. I like how they ran. He just gets abducted. And when he stood amongst the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. That is the third time they've mentioned Saul's height. He was a tall guy, Abe Lincoln tall, right? And again, this is mentioned that he's a tall person as though that means something when it comes to leadership. So Samuel said to all the people, verse 24, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Do you see how tall he is? That there is no one like him amongst all his people. He's super tall. So purely on a physical level, it's almost like this is sarcastic from Samuel. Do you see how tall this guy is that God picked for you? He's head and shoulders above everybody. So maybe in those, or so that's sarcasm is one way to read verse 24. Here's another way to read it. Maybe in those long talks that Samuel and Saul spent on the roof, maybe Samuel actually has come to respect Saul. And maybe he's, you know, maybe the tone of this is not sarcastic, but it's like, don't you see who the Lord has chosen for you? That there's no one like him amongst all his people, that he really does have a good and simple heart. And maybe it's the simplicity of Saul's heart that makes it hard for him to accept David. He's not a complex guy. He's a very simple guy. And maybe his uniqueness, his specialness, is actually um, something to do with his heart and how he operates. There's a purity to him. So I, however you want to read 24, we can walk away with and agree with the fact that Saul is a unique human being in a, in a way that stands out. So all the people shout and they say, long live the king. This is what they've wanted to do all along. They want to worship something on earth. And they got rid of all their idols, but now they're going to make a human into their idol. Verse 25, then Samuel explains to the people the behavior of royalty, which we got in the last chapter, and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. What's interesting here, and we see this in the Bible often, there's books mentioned in the Bible that haven't made it into the Bible because God didn't want them in the Bible. But I think they're going to be in like a heavenly library where we can go and dig in and read some of these things. But part of what prophets would do when they are predicting something will happen is they would write it down on a scroll or what we translate as a book, 
and then they put it in the temple so if it comes true, they know that's the voice of God. And Samuel's done talking to the people because they've already rejected what he's said. Uh, so, so they get their king. They want this pop icon. Uh, and he writes down that that king is going to steal from you. He's going to sin against you. He's going to take your sons and daughters. All of this is going to be bad. And the people's response was like, no, we want the soap opera. We'd rather have the drama and, and something to talk about and something to put our attention on than, than just good and simple worship that God's given us. So he explained it to the people. That repeats Deuteronomy 17 probably, shares the law of kings with them. He writes it in this book, and then he lays it up before the Lord. In doing this, Samuel's saying basically, God, I'm just going to put this on the altar before you because the people aren't listening anymore. So we're back to the people rejecting the Lord. Before the Lord leaves it up to anyone else to put things into his scriptures, we get it there. So maybe when it comes to how to do leadership, this book didn't make it in the Bible because God wanted Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus to be our leadership books. This is what leadership should look like. But he didn't want this like angry negative version from Samuel to be our scriptures on what leadership's going to do and how they're going to act. So we, got, we have other books in the Bible that talk about leadership. Verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. This is interesting. So you're a king, but there's no capital, there's no palace, there's no government. He just, everybody just said, you're king, but there's no kingdom. So what he does in verse 26, he just goes home, <laughs> and he walks home. He doesn't ride or anything like that. He just goes home. Okay, that was a fun party. So he's got this cool title and an earthly kingdom, and it shows you just how fake earthly kingdoms are. They're just constructs that we've made up. And even after the, they do build capitals and palaces, that doesn't change the fact that it's still an earthly construct. It's still a human construct when we call people a king or a prime minister or a president. It's just a title whose hearts have been, of God have touched. The only real authority that Saul has then is the people who God's touched to be in his service. The only real power he has as king is he's got these valiant men that follow him around. And if I got a bunch of people around me, like you don't have to worry about bandits anymore. In fact, you can go out and stop bandits when you get a group of people ready to do justice. right? So his only real power is the people God's put in his life. And that's the true blessing. The only real assurance we have are the godly people that God puts in our path and we get to hang out with and live life with. That's the only real community that's worth having. So David's, here's the other thing. There's a distinction here. When we get to David, David was followed by what kind of men? Does anybody know? It's a different word. What, Grant? Mighty men. When in the Hebrew word mighty is a distinction of the heart, that they're mighty in the heart. These are strong men, not because come from all different ethnicities, different groups of people, but they're mighty men because they have like an honor to them, right? They're like knights. Saul's men are valiant men. It's the Hebrew word hayel, and it means strong, efficient, or wealthy men. He's got a bunch of rich men following him around. So they're the money people. They got bags of money and they want to change the world. But it's an earthly distinction, the word valiant. It's not, these are weird words because in the English they don't translate the same way. But David had people that were full of heart and they would follow him to the grave. Saul's got people that have lots of money and they'll probably follow him as long as he provides something for them. 
So it's a very different kind of thing. Uh, Saul starts out good and he falls away. This is a tough chapter. This is a heavy chapter. It looks a lot like Judas. Judas followed Jesus in the Holy Spirit, was sent out as an apostle. From what we know in Matthew, Judas was one of the guys that was healing people, raising people for the dead. He was, he was a player, but in the end he falls away. And it wasn't something that stuck until the grave. So we see the same situation here. The Spirit can nudge people, but not rest upon them. And that should be something that makes us research our faith a lot, that we get these biblical examples of people falling away. Verse 27, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and they brought him no presence, but he held his peace. Another glimpse of Saul's character. The rebels there are actually children of Belial. I don't know why they would translate that rebels. I think children of Belial or the enemy, the devil, uh, is a, like a striking kind of thing. Um, so this is kind of a Saul has these people that hate him and he holds his tongue. He doesn't deal with them. So he holds his peace uh, is, again, a Jewish concept that we see a lot of in the New Testament. But peace seems to be a, like a commodity that children of God have. I have peace that I can give to you and you have peace that you can give or take away from me. But, and they call it shalom. So they'll greet each other and they'll say shalom, which is how they would give peace to the people they meet. And when you're all done meeting people, you choose if you want to leave that shalom with them or like Jesus commands disciples, sometimes you take your peace with you and you let that person have their not shalom. It's really kind of cool. And I think those Jewish traditions are interesting. Anybody else? Okay, fair enough. Stuff's just looking at me like, keep going, Sean. So he held his peace. Frankly, I think this is kind of a cool cliffhanger at the end of the chapter. It's a section divider. Uh, Saul gets anointed. It starts off good. And then is the first word of chapter 11. We get a whole new kind of section. Um, so time has passed. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamps against Jabesh Gilead. So they got a king, and this is the first situation that would normally require a judge, and now they're not going to have a judge, they're going to have a king. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I'll make a covenant with you, that you can pluck out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Curse Israel, pluck out your right eye, and I won't kill you. And that's the deal that's on the table. So we got a situation where a judge can help them out or where they don't. Ammon agrees to this condition of putting out the eyes because of how ancient warfare happened. When you went into war, you would carry the shield with your left hand and your good hand was your right hand. All the lefties were in the slinger division with the Ephraimites. So all left-handed people fought in their own unit. If I could shield up with my left and the person next to me could do the same, you can form a kind of wall. What's important then is all of your fighting happens out of your right eye. So the reason the Ammonites want them to pluck the right eye is it makes them useless on the battlefield. And the other reason they give is bring reproach on all Israel. This makes Israel look bad. You guys are weak and you don't deserve the cities that you have. So it's not just about combat and earthly reasons. When Nahash says this, it shows an evil intention. He's trying to shame the people of God. That's what he wants in the situation. So you got the situation. Oh, didn't I put that in my notes? Oh, we'll get to it. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days 
that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there's one to save us, we will come out to you. So the Israelites are like, just give us a little time to decide if we want to be plucking out our eyeballs. And in the moment, like, Amon's like, okay, I'll give you time because I think this would be great. And in his malicious intent, he's like, if I can get this prize of a whole city of Israelites shaming their country. And so it's an interesting thing. And it shows kind of this arrogance that is, if you want to resist me, you can, but I'm willing to wait to see if you will or not. So verse 3 the elders ask for a week's time. They send for Saul, and they're going to see if this new king's going to save him or not. Um, but this is good intel. In Think of what Ammon gets out of this, whether or not anyone's going to show up with an army. If Ammon finds out nobody's going to be saving them, he's going to go through all of Israel, and there won't be anybody to defend the country. So this is good intel for, for, for Ammon. Uh, frankly, the word Nahash... Um, means serpent, just so you know. There's a slight symbolic kind of naming going on here. So part of what the enemy wants is he doesn't just want to destroy the believer's ability to do combat. He wants to destroy their pride and take away their honor. So there's clearly an image of just how Satan comes after his pe- uh, 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 against God's people. He requires s- surrender. He requires slavery and shame. And he requires reproach against God's people. And so you get this image of what's there. And he wants to blind us so we can't do spiritual battle. Um, And, of course, his name is serpent or snake. And so we get that imagery that's going on here. The enemy wants God's people to quiver in fear, but fear is the only weapon they have. And so if you can get past the fear, you can fight. Verse 4, So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told him the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and they wept. They started crying. This is exactly what Amon wanted to have happen. He's now got the Israelites spreading fear across Israel. Only they're going to run into this guy who's been touched by the Spirit. What troubles the people that they weep? One gets the impression that tall Saul isn't very intuitive, right? They're coming in and saying this. Okay, what's the problem? He's trying to figure it out. Also, the, the serpent's giving a test. Verse 5, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. Wait a sec. He's back herding donkeys? Like, he's the king of Israel, and he went back to the farm and got to work. Again, God always finds his servants doing manual labor. The only exception is Matthew, the tax collector, who's doing white-collar labor. But God finds his servants while they're working. And, he, and, and while they have jobs and they're doing things. So even the king of Israel goes back to helping his father herd his sheep or whatever animals these are. So he comes behind the herd in the field. That's the person driving the animals. And Saul says, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men at Jabesh. So, <laughs> yeah. I just love the fact that they don't know what a government even looks like right now. Like you would think the king would be like, I want my servants, I want my grapes peeled. Like, set this up. Where's my palace? Let's start building. Saul doesn't understand any of that. He's a very simple guy. And his, his humility is striking in verse 5. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. God's Spirit instilled anger. Don't miss that. When we see injustice and evil and nastiness, there's a degree to which where we're like, that's not right. 
And when we think that, we are in alignment with God when, when that happens. Jesus saw what was going on in the temple, people ripping people off, selling animals and saying that your, your sacrifice isn't pure enough for this temple. And Jesus got angry about it. It wasn't the kind of anger he went to sleep on. He just, he just let that anger out and he started flipping tables. Sometimes when evil is so overt and in the face of God's people, the proper response is to say that's not right and it's not okay. If you see somebody being mugged, you respond to that and trust that you're doing God's will in saving that person. But sometimes that takes a little anger. You see unrighteousness and you say, I'm not going to put up with that. And I'm not going to let that person be beat right in front of me. So this is where Saul reacts in that kind of way. I'm not going to let these people get beat up by Ammon. I'm not going to put up with bullies. And there has to be a degree of righteous anger that says, I will stand in the gap and stop this. So Saul risks his own life and starts marching out against Ammon. And he does it out of this spirit of, I don't like bullies. God doesn't like bullies. And the Holy Spirit inspired in me a, a detesting of bullies. And I'm not going to put up with this as long as I'm king, is what he's thinking. Verse 7, so he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them to pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of his messengers, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. They all show up, right? So this kind of is a reflection of what we saw in Judges where they cut up the, the guy cut up his wife and send it out to Israel. So this seems to be a way that you get people's attention. You send them rotting meat, right? So it's kind of gross, uh, but it does get their attention. And Saul is exercising exactly what Samuel said was going to happen. If you want a king, he's going to take your sons and daughters and he's going to make his armies. So Saul starts to do exactly what Samuel said he would do. Um, and do note that when you get a piece of oxen that's been hand-delivered by foot, there are no refrigerators and there's no coolers. It comes as a big rotten piece of meat. And he doesn't say, I'm going to kill you. He says, it shall be done to his oxen. Because people want to stay home and take care of their farms, take care of their business. So what he's going to do is he's going to take that livestock and kill it because you're more worried about your home than about these people in a Jewish town that are getting attacked. So let's go save our brothers and sisters. They do it with one consent, um, which means one mind, or in the Hebrew, as though they are one person in the singular. They're thinking the same thoughts. This is kind of cool. We've seen Israel always be divided into tribes. This may be one of the very rare times that Israel acts with one consent as one man. It's a really unique little addition right there in the middle is that even though Israel is going a path God didn't encourage them to go down, he's still growing and they're still developing as a nation. And they're still moving forward. So, verse 8, When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000, exactly 10%. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of jabesh and they were glad. Why are they glad? Because when they sent out their messengers, they had no idea if they were going to be saved. So they didn't know if they had a savior or not. So they send it out in the hope that maybe salvation is on the way. And when the messengers come back, the role of the messengers is to say, don't worry, salvation is on the way. 
And, and again, it's reflective of what Jesus tells his disciples. Our job is to go out and tell people that salvation is here. It's a, you know, the kingdom of God has arrived. Verse 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So they lie to the Ammonites. We're going to submit, but this buys them one more day. We'll come out tomorrow and you can pluck out our eyeballs. But they know they got help coming. It's a little deceptive. This is not a biblical endorsement of lying. It's what they did. And so historically they just say it and they do it. But the effect of this is to relax the serpent and get the serpent off guard. To think that we're not going to fight you. And then the serpent kind of relaxes a little bit. The serpent being Nahash or whatever his name is. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. He uses some strategy. Interesting. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. So militarily, the three companies is something we're going to see, and it becomes part of Jewish tradition. The Jews always attacked on three sides. And the reason they attacked on three sides was to allow a way of escape. If you didn't want to be at battle with God's people, you could leave. And that way, the only people they were killing were people that were in defiance against God's will or God's people because they didn't desire it. So when it says they scattered or they escaped, they would leave because the three companies would entrap the Ammonites on three sides, which left a way of escape. And God leaves a way of escape for people that are, that are there. So this attack is defensive in nature. Uh, they are defending themselves against an aggressive force. This attack is three-sided, which allows for a way of escape. And the survivors are let go. There's a lack of wrath for the Israelites. So in those three elements alone, we see what's called like a merciful warfare. This isn't the warfare of hate and aggression. This is the warfare of self-defense. And this warfare of we're only going to kill the people that want to stay and fight us. And then they let those survivors go. They don't do mass slaughter. This is different from judges where they did all that stuff. And in Judges, they were just against God's will, but there's nothing here that says they're outside of God's will. So the Bible does not condemn this defensive position that Saul takes. Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we shall put them to death. So this is from chapter 10, verse 27, the children of Belial, the rebels. So this idea is, let's kill them all. Let's kill the people that defied Saul. So instead of being vindictive against the Ammonites, they're actually vindictive against their own brothers and sisters. And you see this internal attack. But Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. When God's salvation is coming, we don't need to go after people that don't accept it. In fact, there's mercy shown. The first act of Saul after defending this city is to give mercy. So Saul starts out on the right page. The work of God isn't to still kill and destroy. That's what the serpent does. The work of God is salvation, protection, refuge, love, and now we see mercy. You see how Saul's starting out on the right foot? He's doing all the right things. So the Lord has accomplished this. Saul gives God the credit for what's going on. It'd be so easy for Saul to give himself the credit. Look at what I have done. Look at how amazing I am. And when, as we get into the book of Kings, we'll see kings that do exactly that. But Saul starts out, trusting in the Lord, and the Lord gives him victory. Verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So instead of going and attacking the rebels, he's, they're going to go to Gilgal and rebuild the kingdom, which implies they're going to go do worship and sacrifice. 
They're going to praise the Lord God Almighty instead of relishing this earthly battle. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they made sacrifices of peace, read that as barbecue, offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly, read that as singing songs of worship, studying the word of God, being with God's people, having a good hot cocoa. Um, Saul proves himself. Samuel is this wellspring of goodwill. And it's savvy. Instead of attacking his enemies, he brings them closer. So even if they're still against Saul, and he knows that, he's heard them, this gifting or anointing has happened, and he's acting in a way that's going to be the best possible situation for Israel as they get going. Here's another thing. He gets anointed back in chapter 10. He gets confirmation along the way. He hides from his responsibilities. But once he takes them, he has these great victories. And then he's able to exhibit God's will to the people. And the attacks of the enemy are getting used by God to prove Saul's rightful place as king. So he's been anointed and called a king, but he's actually here in verse 14, 15, actually Saul is made king before the Lord because at this point he has the support of the people. So he doesn't make himself king. The Lord makes him king. Just the way this is worded. The peace offerings are before the Lord. They're still under God's authority, but they've got Saul as somebody who can kind of fight their battles for him. This is another framing of Jesus as king. So when we see king in the Old Testament, we start to see the framing of a, a godly, God-inspired king being put up here. And at least at this point with Saul, he's been anointed king. The spirit rests on him. It is, it is in a form of baptism and with the oil going over his head. Some but not all accept him as the king. He goes back to his home and is hanging out with his home when the serpent attacks God's people and then the king returns to be savior. And the king becomes the savior that the people of God are looking for. Sound familiar? Like the framing of this is mirrored in the New Testament and with Jesus very clearly. So after scores of these mirrors in the Old Testament. When Jesus actually shows up, this is where thousands of Jews converted to Christianity. They're like, oh, Jesus fits everything. All of these situations is a perfect match for God's actual plan with us. Now that it's revealed, we can see these connections with the Old Testament. And in that revelation, we should have no doubt who we serve and what we're doing. God's not in, there's nothing that happens by accident here. So we recognize and see it along with everybody else who's read the Old Testament. Like now we recognize what's so significant about Jesus is that he fits all these examplings. And then our response to that should also be like verse 15. The response is they give peace offerings before the Lord. Lord God, you are almighty and you are holy and we live at peace with you instead of at war with you. So let's give our offerings to the Lord, offerings of praise and worship and offerings of ministry to one another because that's the proper response when you see that we have a Savior that redeems us. We don't have to live wondering if the Redeemer is going to show up or not. He's already shown up. And that's the response of the people of Israel. Salvation comes and they celebrate and give peace to God. That's the invitation that when we're explaining this to people that aren't believers, their salvation's already arrived. It's a gift you just need to celebrate. Repent of your sin, accept Jesus Christ, and all of this gets added to you. And it's such a blessing. And we see that, I don't know, I see that back in the book of Samuel with Saul who's going to turn out to be a bum king. 
right? But he started out with that inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he starts out right. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, we just thank you that when we look for it, we can see Jesus in almost every chapter we've hit, uh, that there's so many connections and tie-ins, so many images of kingship, anointing, bread, uh, that all these things tie together, Lord, throughout your scriptures, and they, they bring a very consistent message that points right to Jesus. So we thank you for that. We thank you for revelation. Lord, I thank you for how the Holy Spirit rests upon the people in this room. Lord, that we're just living and walking with you, and I get the pure joy of calling these folks brothers and sisters. Lord, I ask for you to anoint each one of them. Send them out to announce the salvation of the King. May they go with courage and boldness and joy. And Lord, may they just be people of grace and mercy, not seeking vengeance, but seeking to love and care for the people around them. Lord, I pray for um, that our ears, that we have ears to hear and eyes to see that you're at work. And Lord, your work is so subtle sometimes, but help us to see it and recognize it when it's happening, that we can glorify you in what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.